You're tuned into Economic and Political Weekly's new podcast show, Research Radio. We hope to bring academic rigor to ask and address complex questions. Our show lets you learn directly from researchers who are at the forefront of their fields. India runs one of the world's largest food security programs and today we learn about how changes to the method in which food and grains reach beneficiaries can significantly increase people's access to food. I'm your host Abhishek and I'm joined with two researchers who surveyed 1600 households to understand which method of delivering food and grains can work best. Direct cash transfers, the existing public distribution system, or food coupons. They'll share their findings based on research they published in EPW last October. Dr. Mamta Pradhan has over 14 years of experience in the field of development where she's focused largely on nutrition and public health. Dr. Devesh Roy has over 17 years of experience in the fields of food security, agriculture and trade. Dr. Vinay Sonkar is the third author for this research but was unable to join us for this podcast. Thank you so much for joining us Dr. Pradhan and Dr. Roy. Thank you Abhishek. Thank you for having us for this initiative. <laughs> Thank you. Would you like to start by telling us about what made you interested in researching about food security and specifically about the experiences and needs of those who rely on food security schemes? India has this largest footprints of the food security programs in the whole world. I mean, if you look at our National Food Security Act, it has the footprint of even providing for subsidized grains to almost about 800 million people, and the scale that it's it is being done is it's quite staggering. But in spite of all these efforts, you know, there has been in trying to ensure all this food security, you know, starting from all the from the period of the pre-green revolution the food security concerns or the lot of effort that has been put at the end of the day i mean what we argue is that the performance or the delivery has been really really subpar so what what goes on to explain all that you know this gap and i mean a lot of research has been done i mean in terms of um, there has been arguments that counter arguments talking about you know what would be the possible reasons behind this why why what has been promised and what has been delivered has been so subpar so but everybody you know in all the whole body of the research or the discourse in the policy space has always been talked about is from the supply side you know in terms of what is the government design in terms of the program what is delivered what are the mechanisms of it but there was one big element you know the whole issue about the demand side in terms of how the system is managed how it is delivered whether it is in sync with what is optimal for the beneficiaries in terms of what do they want what do they desire what are their preferences and that we thought would be the first order implication toward this outcomes would be when it is related to the food security so the idea is, is that we kind of what motivated is is that there is a lot of mismatch between what is being provided for and what is be, uh, being delivered and when there is a mismatch when there is when there's a misalignment you know between what is promised and what is being delivered there will always be leakages in the system there will always be mm-hmm. cor- corruption in the system so the uptake of the program will always be you know compromised so and when you asked us about uh, specifically about what has been the experiences the needs of those who rely on this food security system is that's exactly the crux of our research you know 
experiences and needs of those these people the beneficiaries or the rights holder for whom all these programs is made that matters they bear on the preferences they bear on how do they want to uh, take up the program so we have to internalize that that experiences and needs of these beneficiaries matter in if we really are looking at an outcome which is optimal for these beneficiaries Your research makes use of several methods including surveys, interviews and focus group discussions. What went behind conceptualizing the research process? When we were really conceptualizing our research, we really had to uh, then rely on the mixed methods. It's both uh, quantitative and the qualitative methods, the combination of both these uh, research methods because we knew that when we have to analyze these needs at such a granular level quantitative methods you know has necessitates it to be very brief it has to be very close ended questions and the responses too so that's where the qualitative actually helps in terms of kind of getting us this whole whole range of information about the class and the, the local populations that we found that cannot be actually captured in the quantitative data so a qualitative actually brought all this more nuanced and very very uh, subtle analysis of this whole role of class and local correlations in engagement with the pds and also that this methods were sequentially done so that one method actually kind of informed the use of the second and how did you investigate the role that power relations especially based on identity play in people's access to the pds all the reservations whether of the dealership or across all the whether it's the mukhya or the you know the sarpanch so the reservations are based either on the caste or the gender right so what happened was in qualitative when we went through the field the shared caste bit i mean the advantage of being the you know sharing the same caste we thought would mitigate a lot of factors around discrimination but that didn't seem to be happening so what we discovered was that uh, this whole bonding actually happens more at the subcaste level at the jati level so right whether you are a yadav or not you know even if you are an obc but in obc there are like maybe 200 or 300 subcaste mm-hmm. to that so how it works you know the correlations is more at the jati level but what we are doing you know it's always at the superficial level of the social a uh, group level which actually doesn't pan out in the field and more interestingly in bihar especially there was this whole one village which was the yadav village used to be called as the yadav village so Yadav is the new upper caste, the OBC, right, in Bihar. So even that changes, right? The whole concept about caste being of a certain, you know, group doesn't hold now. Even if if you are one of this dominant caste, so they are kind of now the upper caste. So in Bihar, it is more of the Yadavs. So the whole village was a Yadav village. So and the dealer was an OBC. The whole village, on what ninety percent of the population was OBC. Yet it was one of the worst performing PDS shops. and when i stayed in that village for a while i it took me a while to discover why kind of this is happening considering that we have a dealer who is an obc and the whole of this population seems to be obc it should work right so so i was surprised to find that it's not even at the jati level it actually works at the clan level what's the gotra level what's your gotra so those people who were of the same clan as that of the dealer seemed to get a more of a preferential treatment 
than those who were not. So do you see at what granular level this all this, you know, the caste factors works? Uh, so it, it kind of really threw this whole idea about, you know, whole idea of whatever this established affirmative action that we have been talking about for all this while. It just it went for a toss. So, uh, so the complexity, you know, that's why when I said in the beginning, the heterogeneity in India, especially, it takes a very, very complex forms. And in, especially in terms of the caste, it just does not work at the social group level. At the most, I mean, we can go to the level of the sub-caste level, the jati level. But if you really want to go to the deeper, you know, you will find that even doesn't function at the jati level. It, it kind of functions at the clan level, the go-through level. Apart from the fact that this happens at that granular level of a jati, that's one thing. But the second part is that whichever level it happens, you still have to get the incentives right, right? So there is no reason to believe that if you get someone from your same caste or caste group or jati, unless you get, you know, the incentives right in terms of, you know, if they are going to be penalized for diverting your grains, if they are penalized for not delivering on the grains on time or whatever, then only this thing is going to work. As long as the enforcement of such things are not there, it really uh, attenuates the effect of any affirmative action that you'll have at that level. Because, you know, if through that reservation or through that affirmative action, we get woman uh, dealer in the fair price shop. But if unless you have the incentives right, you will still find the same outcomes because this, even people from the same caste will not get the grains on time because if he or she has the system set up to divert the grains, independent of caste, independent of uh, social identity, that would still work because you don't have the incentives right. And that's what we see in our research. What I found was when it's reserved for a certain caste, once they are in that position, they tend to behave as the upper caste. And the incentive to uh, siphon off all these grains is so much that even the caste doesn't matter there, you know. So, I mean, my incentive as a dealer to sell off and make some more money is higher than the, all these uh, reasons around why I, I should be even be more giving you preferential treatment because we are of the same caste. So the, the, he's right about the incentive, you know, like there has to be the right incentive for even for the shared caste to function. It's, I mean, besides being of all this, uh, all this whole issue of uh, the jati group or the clan. The arbitrage opportunities have only gone up with NFSA because now the differential between the PDS price and the market price has even been much larger, right? We began to see the signs of those perverse incentives coming up when you are moving towards NFSA because now the wedge between the PDS price and the market price is so much larger. It's not that if I'm entitled to five kg of rice and if I'm of the same uh, clan or go through, maybe I'll end up getting at least three kgs. But if it's I'm not of that same, even I may end up getting just one kg. It's it's all a relative term in terms of I mean, how the preferential treatment really pans out, right? In our notes from the field segment, we'd like to learn about two particularly insightful experiences you had while implementing your research plan. So when I was in the field and you see so much of discrimination, you know, especially uh, women, I mean, they are uh, they are at the frontiers, you know, when it just comes to the access of PDS, there's so much of access issues in terms of they are made to wait, there will be an abusive dealer, so they have to like be a long line. And I, what I found was a lot of them kept quiet and there was no action against the dealer or against, there's no complaint, there was no uh, grievance reducing mechanism. They 
they did quite of make use of that and on the face of it it really seemed very irrational you know and we couldn't just rationalize as to why why there is so much of silence why there is so much of inaction so what uh, i mean this longer stay in the field made me realize is this is all their coping strategy in terms of how do they really access their entitlement so there was constantly there was this whole trade off between really managing the current endowment and that the long term entitlement so if i don't want to come under the spotlight you know and be seen that she's the troublemaker so even if i get my entitlement in the short run in the long term and i lose out on that so hold this inaction or not being responsive to all this abuses or the discrimination or all this access issues was actually the part of their coping strategy so that was uh, the third revelation because we keep complaining i mean i keep hearing from all this uh, you know in the policy discourse that beneficiaries uh, should be talking about it there's we have introduced a grievance redressal mechanism they should be making use of it it's not that easy it's at that village level they have to deal with all those local politics you know to survive that to ensure whatever they're entitled to at least in some form may not be in the whole full form of whatever they're supposed to get but at least in some bit they ensure it and so all this inaction or you know all this silence is nothing but that coping strategy i did see any collective action happening and that's also part of a coping strategy like they preferred what we call it as strategic waiting they'll wait for one person to take some action and then they will join the bandwagon to really talk about it or you need an external stimuli because there was in one case in orissa where an ngo actually kind of intervened so when the people came forward but left to themselves probably in their own world uh, they would still rely on being not very res- responsive to any kind of you know discriminatory behavior and can you tell me about beneficiaries experience with the redressal system in the whole value chain you see right from the block level to the state level things don't get heard like that that's the truth that's the reality and look at the spending the whole day in going to the complain about you know whatever the 2 kg or 3 kg rice so there's this whole wage they lose out i mean most of them are wage laborers so why would they even go to that extent of you know putting in a whole day or two day to go and complain about just a 2 kg or 3 kg rice when they have to really compromise on a lot of other things so there are a whole lot of issues that really goes out in terms of uh, why they don't take advantage of the grievance redressals one it doesn't work right and two they have to give up a lot to even to complain for what they don't consider it is kind of uh, really worth fighting for you know one of the thing that really follows from what uh, andres lifer the economist he always call corruption as the greed in the system that make things work and then there is this whole issue of that so at the, at the pds in the pds system you still need this some bit of corruption as the grease that really runs the system with so for instance you know as mantha would always say that you know it was totally socially acceptable that if the nfsa price is 2 rupees per kg for wheat 3 rupees per kg for rice they would be charged 3 rupees per kg for wheat and 4 rupees per kg for the so 1 rupee per kg more and it was totally socially acceptable and they nobody would complain about that right you know and then the heterogeneity that uh, mamta was talking about that really defied any chance of collective action and that's where the granularity at which the heterogeneity works 
really matters. So you are getting a hit on many different fronts, right? You're hit on prices because one rupee per kg, that might seem that, okay, that's just a marginal addition. But then you're also being compromised on the entitlement in terms of quantity. So if you combine these two, effectively, you're paying a much higher price. To the extent your entitlements are compromised on the quantity side, as well as you're paying a per unit price, which is higher, your net effect is so much higher. And that's what uh, we call it the effective price in our paper. Point is, in terms of all the reasons that Mamta was talking about, in terms of the coping strategy, you know, uh, this is, you know, we used to use a term as this conditioned despotism, right? You know, uh, despondency that, you know, you just are conditioned that nothing will happen because uh, you have updated your beliefs over a long period of time. So no no kind of resistance really comes up in the system because the respondent, as Mamta would uh, recall, would always say that, no, there is no point of this system approaching a mukhya or approaching a grievance judicial system or go to a collectorate and so on, do it because nothing is going to happen because we know it as experience. When it comes to the delivery mechanism, they would say, that would determine their preferences by looking at all the experiences that they had. So, uh, Mamta, it was like basically what they would see in the Indra Abash Yosna, right? And they said that it will not come on time, the cash will not be delivered on time, and there's no redress till that works there. So, all these things are it's kind of in uh, statistical terms, is kind of Bayesian updating of their beliefs and preferences uh, and, uh, and all the coping mechanism that we really found in the system. Hey, another thing I wanted to add is that, I mean, the markers of uh, discrimination is that Divesh talked about quantity and price. These two are very tangible, like you can see it, okay? And even if I wish to complain about it, it's fine. But how do you do that uh, subtle discrimination in terms of the quality? Quality came up as a huge, huge issue in the field, you know. The, so if you are of a certain caste, the quality of rice that was given was was very, very subpar to the extent that, you know, I, I have uh, I have personally seen it, it with all the pebbles and the cement and all that. And vis-a-vis, um, -vis, if you are of an upper caste, uh, so the quality varies. So this is something, a discrimination, which is very subtle. And I don't know how do I, as a beneficiary, would like to report it, you know, if it were have to do a phone call to, you know, at the block level, or the upper level. So quality was one major, you know, the subtle form of discrimination and all these access issues, you know, if I have to make to wait, you know, how many hours, if I have, I have abusive dealer. So all these are really major factors that determines your access, you know, quantity and price, people kind of uh, have accepted it, you know, the, a marginal rise of one or two or a, less than a one kg or two kg. People really don't mind about it. But what really hits them hard is actually the quality, especially for the women, you know. They have to come back and then have to sort out those rice or and then have to prepare. So it ultimately comes on the woman at the end of the day because the quality is so, so subpar. So and that's the subtle kind of discrimination. And I don't know how, how do you go and report about it. Uh -huh. You've outlined some of the many challenges beneficiaries face in accessing food and grains. Can you tell me more about your findings about people's preferences? So all along, what we found is that that's where this heterogeneity comes across uh, three states. The preference was the diverse. I mean, it, it, it did vary and it came from their experiences with PDS, right? And for example, in Bihar, 
majority preferred cash and food coupons not to say that you know there were not some who didn't prefer pdfs but the overriding factor was that they really wanted to have an alternative system which would minimize their interface with the dealer and really expand their choice set so cash kind of gave them that kind of a sovereignty you know in terms of really expanding their choice set they can buy the whatever the quality the quantity they want from any shop same was with the food uh, coupons or the food stamps but not similar to the what bihar had done earlier it is something akin to where you can redeem it at any grocery shop not just at the pdn shop so you see the preference that we are saying is that one size fit for all kind of uh, prescription is not what we are trying to give here we we want to say that you have to recognize that there is heterogeneity and we have to internalize it and it varies by region to region you can't just say pan can't just say cash that works you can't just say it's the food stamp that works or you can't just say that the in kind transfer is what will work it varies and it varies from state to state and you have to take cognizance of that for example in orissa the reasons why they didn't prefer cash was not because of any domestic abuse that the women will face and you will be surprised to know that almost 90% said that if you give us cash women they were saying is that we will misuse it on tobacco and toddy so do you see the reasons behind what their preferences goes up and also in orissa we found that there is a credibility issue also you know there was this indira avas uh, yojana where there is a housing subsidy that is given so for most it didn't work out for them i mean it's just that the power center changes they had ca- uh, uh, cash coming in for this housing schemes and they had to pay commission to the bank officials so so for them they had a total distrust about cash pd is something they had been used to right in orissa so i mean if it's one uh, one rupee more or two rupees more or one kg less at least they know that the system exists cash is something they're quite unfamiliar with there's no infrastructure to it they are not used to the banking system there is a credibility issues also which is kind of preceding their experiences so all this makes what they prefer So if you go to Orissa they would prefer cash they would pre- still prefer BDs if you go to come to uh, Bihar and UP there's a overwhelming you know preference for cash or any alternative system that's what the women said that uh, give us anything just about anything where it will limit our interface with the dealers and they're so fed up and they're so fed up with all the abusive nature that uh, they're so fed up of you know going through this rigmarole of every month being abused standing in the line waiting for hours hours and hours for their entitlements they just want to have an alternative system give us anything but this so that's how it kind of determines so i mean whether it is cash whether it's food stamps whether it's pds it ultimately determines what the beneficiaries themselves want from it right and that again has a bearing on what experiences they have so if there is an alignment if their experience is good and there is an alignment with what your system is providing for you will always have a better outcome but if there is a misalignment then things fall apart if if in bihar if you go and say pds they are already their experience is so bad even if you keep adding to that pds you know pulses or eggs or vegetables you will see the outcome is is always be subpar so this so all along what we're trying to maintain is that you know whole this debate about cash and kind it, it, it you cannot have just one is fit for all kind of a prescription so there is a regional variation and you have to understand what are their experiences what are the needs of these beneficiaries and based on that you need to have that kind of a policy prescription
Right, we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. And food stamps is a relatively new system India is trying. What are some of the early findings about its strengths and weaknesses? This is a whole question of credibility. Like you look at what is happening in GST, right? People, uh, I mean, the those who have to get uh, reimbursement from the government, they are struggling to get it. So that the same kind of uh, the psyche actually works when you look at all the, uh, you know, the sellers. When it comes to, they say, okay, the food coupon, we provide the grains and so on. But, you know, uh, what is the credibility that the government will give us the money in real, uh, in good time, right? And that's one of the issues that we are looking at from the seller side that there is, uh, because ideally, if you look at from the beneficiary side, their preference is not for the food coupon of the Bihar food coupon type, right? So where uh, you can just only get it honored in the PDS shop. You can only, the preference is actually that what we have gauged, what we have assessed is actually for a food stamp, right? Which is going to be honored both by the private sellers as well as the PDS system, right? And that, you know, uh, Mamta and I, we have done, uh, argued this in different uh, 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 kind of research components that this actually really shifts the bargaining power in favor of the beneficiary. But if your PDS shop doesn't behave well, the PDS dealer doesn't really treat you well, you can go to the private sector and just get it, right? And uh, if you uh, buffer it up with uh, kind of what is now ONARC, which is one nation, one ration card system, make it portable, make it divisible, get a food stamp kind of a program if needed, then that you are really drastically going to change the bargaining power in favor of the beneficiaries. What is there with the NFSA with all these changes in prices and getting uh, broader coverage of the beneficiaries? That's not the complete picture. That will not do the full trick. That's what our kind of element in the research is in this in this in this paper. You argue that debates about delivery mechanisms are quote driven by ideology rather than facts and sound empirical assessment. What are some of these ideologies and how do they play out in commonplace discussions? You know, a lot of time just with uh, looking at very small samples, small data, uh, and uh, some experiences, some expert opinions, and so on, people have been finding uh, uh, and formulating a prior that this works or this doesn't work. Uh, what we actually argue for in order to make those choices, you need really rigorous big data analysis in order to, uh, and taking into account the heterogeneity, taking into account the heterogeneity at the very granular level in order to understand that what works and what doesn't work. We need like sound empirical evidence before making the choice, what should be optimal here, what should be optimal there, what form will be optimal here, what form will be optimal there, and so on. As Divesh said, that you do this kind of research in some small area, or it is the whims and fancies of some one bureaucrat who sits and thinks that cash works better, or PDS works better. And that's how the policy formulation actually works out. And in Indian context, especially heterogeneity matters, and let's all internalize that. And you just can't be talking about cash as it is same for the woman. I mean, when we're talking about women in interact, uh, intersection with caste, class, the whole equation actually changes. Whether they would prefer cash or they would prefer PDS, they would prefer food coupons. So you have to account for that heterogeneity before you even decide for any kind of policy prescriptions. And to account for this, 
really needs hard data. It really needs that kind of a rigor and an assessment to be done. Mm-hmm. To what extent does your research have implications for other welfare programs? We have to really take account on the heterogeneity. And because there is a heterogeneity, there is a need for needs assessment. Well, the question always comes up. So at what granular level can we go in terms of trying to assess what people want, what are their preferences, what has been their experiences, what have there been a needs? So to start with, we can at least have it at an aggregate level in terms of trying to understand across these three elements of the PDS, you know, what kind of product portfolio they want. And in product also, when we say it is three-tiered, you know, what kind of product, product itself, whether rice, wheat, pulses, what variety of that product and what quality. These three things needs to be taken care of if you are talking about making a difference in the product portfolio. Second is the delivery mechanisms. So at the aggregate level, at least we can go and check whether what kind of experiences people have. It's a huge program that you're running. You're spending billions and billions of money on it. And you just can't go back and do a kind of a needs assessment. And if you look at even all this telecom sector, people will be calling us 100 times to know how did our you know phone work? What were the features that you need? Is it really in sync with uh, you know what we had promised? But this is a kind of a public program that we are dealing with. We're putting in so much money. We really didn't, don't go back and kind of check what kind of needs or experiences people have with this kind of uh, programs. So the principles remain the same, that whether it is PDS, whether it's any of these poverty programs that we are running, you need to go back and check with their experiences and needs of the beneficiaries. And considering that, uh, that this whole heterogeneity plays out in Indian co- context and it's so complex, uh, we have to internalize that. So that's the prescription that comes from our kind of uh, research. Basically, you know, what we, we could just summarize that by saying that for all these non-market interventions, we need the market principles to work. The market principles work on creating demand having a demand assessment. I mean, that's how markets work. Markets first assess the demand and they deliver accordingly. And so for all these non-market interventions, we need the market principles to work. I mean, that's what uh, would be the take-home message, so to say. Are there unanswered questions that you continue to investigate? One that I'm really interested in trying to unpack this whole social network of the dealer. Uh, Here in our research, we just kind of uh, touched base on time. So what his relationship is about with the Mukia, for example. But we have not actually really investigated or examined this whole gamut of his social networks in terms of uh, how he functions, why he functions, the way he functions, because that's the last mile delivery problem, right? So everything hinges on the data. Yeah, so there is uh, one other part that we really want to do is basically to look at some of the really kind of uh, low-cost intervention, but that can have really first-order uh, impact. So like, for instance, Bihar has introduced this system where they were going to inform and they put it on uh, their website. They put it and uh, so one nobody, everybody can access uh, what is the time at which the grains were discharged to go to the dealer. So if the dealer, this is a very low cost inter- intervention, but if the people have this information, they, they have this knowledge, they are made aware that you know the grains have been discharged, so they should now be getting it. Something along the line that Chhattisgarh did, right? And now if people can access that information, it can really empower them. And then the dealer cannot say, no, the grains have not yet come, so I'll open the shop like uh, three days later, right? Because uh, that uh, simple information uh, transfer can actually really empower people. 
Right. Just moving to the last question of our show, and it's one that we ask all our guests, is what do you see as the role of academic research in furthering equity both inside and outside institutional spaces? We want to try to look at, you know, if we can get anywhere close to any kind of causal impact. Like when we talked about this whole information dissemination that is there, that if you put in the information that the grains have been discharged, now you can access your grain. We can just send message to people. We want to see the impact of that. Then we need the kind of academic research with done with methods that can do a much better job of understanding attribution. That was a lot of rich and detailed information. Thank you so much for sharing it with us, Dr. Pradhan and Dr. Roy. Thank you, Abhishek. It was lovely talking with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our pleasure. Governments usually design welfare schemes in a top-down manner, where the experiences and knowledge of those designing the schemes are prioritized, rather than those who the schemes are intended to support. Given that research usually follows this top-down method as well, it was refreshing to learn about how Dr. Pradhan and Dr. Roy's research listened to the needs of beneficiaries. What I found most interesting from what they shared with us was what Dr. Pradhan said about how when members from marginalized castes became PDS dealers, they replicated some of the discriminatory behavior that was otherwise associated with upper castes. To me, this revealed structures that require practices of domination and subordination, emphasizing the need to, as they mentioned, change incentives and encourage measures for transparency and accountability. To read the entire article written by Dr. Roy, Dr. Pradhan and Dr. Sonkar that I've shared in the description of this podcast. Next week, we'll hear from Professor Sobin George about the specific ways in which upper and middle castes provide subpar and discriminatory healthcare to Dalits. We learn about how power hierarchies embedded in the medical system complement caste supremacy, enabling a normalization of discriminatory practices. To make sure you don't miss out on that and our future podcasts, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast streaming platform. We are available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. And since we're new to podcasting, we would love to hear from you about how we're doing. Send us an email at social at epw.in or ping us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter with your feedback. And if you like what we're doing, do share it with interested folks. Take care and until next week.